Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the Employment Law Podcast. We are your hosts. I am Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And today we're doing another special solo Max Amit or Amit Max special. Um, and it's again going to touch on the sports world. Sorry to non-sports fans around here, Amit and I follow these sorts of things. And when they tie into employment law and they're in the news, we figure it might make for a good, uh, good topic to give us something a little bit off the beaten path to discuss. This one's going to touch upon guests we've had and topics we've talked about before, too. So it's, it's pretty broad in terms of coverage of employment law. Good news, though, if you don't like football, this one's at least about basketball. So there's that. So today, what we're going to talk about is an ESPN. It, it, it stems from an ESPN article that I would actually encourage folks to read that came out a little over a month ago by Baxter Holmes. And it was an investigative report that involved Baxter interviewing, I think, at least 70 different former Phoenix Suns employees. More than 70 former and current employees. Yeah. So the headline on the article is allegations of racism and misogyny within the Phoenix Suns inside Robert Sarver's 17-year tenure as owner. And for context for non-sports listeners, Robert Sarver is the owner of the Phoenix Suns or one of the owners, the majority owner. Yeah. So for non-sports fans or folks who follow it distantly, these organizations are large multi-billion dollar sports franchises. They tend to be owned by ownership groups, but typically at least to, to more involved fans in the league, they tend to know the ownership based on sort of whoever the front person is of that ownership. Cause usually there is one largely majority owner who owns at least 50% of the shares or the largest plurality. Robert Sarver has owned the Phoenix Suns for almost 20 years since 2004. They've been largely bad with some exceptions during that time. And it's been known just casually, even independent of this report, as a pretty dysfunctional organization. I seem to remember some story about him bringing a goat into the general manager's office and it defiling his office, but I don't remember the details of that. I don't remember that. It's not in the story. So no, it's um, not, but it was years back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think from a, just to protect ourselves, everything we're going to be referencing and quoting from is from Baxter Holmes' story. So if there's any disagreements, go email him. To the employment litigators listening to this, I think the story, as much as it's pretty graphic and there are some pretty unsavory allegations in here, I don't think anything we're reading is going to be necessarily as shocking to those of us who do this because we're used to seeing allegations like this in the workplace. I think they should be shocking. I just think if you do this for a living, it's like, oh, I've seen this movie before, just not necessarily in a pro sports franchise, but in a office building or in a factory setting it's you know because i mean i think at the end of the day these are businesses as well and you know as much as the the product is the on-court athletic play there's an office behind it where, where a lot of this stuff gets made to happen yeah that gets lost we referenced that too when we were talking about john gruden but again this is a business with a lot of employees an hr department etc and so it sometimes gets lost in the context of well they're a sports team so i mean you want to you want to start the yep. uh, overview Yep, yep. So Baxter, like Max said, conducted interviews with more than 70 current and former employees. And what came out from those interviews was what he described as a toxic and sometimes hostile work environment under the owner, Robert Sarver. There was a level of misogyny and racism. And according to one son's co-owner, his quote was, the level of misogyny and racism is beyond the pale. 
There were allegations of racist comments. There were allegations of treating women very, very poorly and different, differently than male coworkers. In, within this article, Baxter talks about or explains the situation in which Robert had passed around a picture of his wife in a bikini. There are allegations of um, you know, sexual comments he made. He had treated women to the point of they were just leaving and when they would feel bad about, they would feel bad about leaving about what they're leaving behind towards other women. There are also allegations of HR knowing a lot of this was happening, but being too afraid to act because they didn't know what they could do. And so I think it kind of covers the gauntlet of horrible and toxic behavior within the workplace, at least from an allegation standpoint. Robert Sarver has denied a lot of the claims or at least tried to recontextualize them. Other people have come out and are referenced within this article as saying they're shocked by some of these allegations. So there is an ongoing NBA investigation as well. They've hired an outside law firm to look into this. And we'll talk about that later too. So Max, I know I was just talking kind of in generalities and very top level. So what are some of the more specific allegations that are referenced in um, this article? So the first one that they discussed and the one that jumps out to me, right? And most immediately is that again, allegedly that Sarver frequently and would repeatedly use the N-word and racial slurs. There are examples they give that Baxter Holmes gives about him coming into the locker room and yelling about how players were allowed to do it and not him. There were multiple former executives who made those allegations. There was an allegation by, again, by way of example only as to the gender toxicity and discrimination that was uh, that was present, that there was a pregnant employee that he prevented from or tried to prevent from working on a specific project. So then there were there were there were other things going on. There were all staff meetings where Sarver was allegedly talking about oral sex and his and his wife's personal sex life, um, talking about Magnum or extra large condoms that Sarver frequently liked to talk to or ask the players about their sex lives, that there was just a general feeling among female employees that they felt devalued and like they were. I think one one female staffer alleges that they were possessions and they, he doesn't that Sarver didn't think of them as anywhere close to where the men were. Yeah, they felt like they were being owned. And I, I mean, maybe it's just, again, he was the owner of the team. So he also created an environment where employees felt they were being owned by an individual. So one female employee had a quote in the article, quote, it wrecked my life. I was contemplating suicide. All right. You've got one example where one woman who worked at the organization in a meeting, there was some issue where he was berating some female employees over something. And one woman broke down and crying because he was being verbally abusive. And he goes, well, why do all you women cry around here so much? Just that there were a lot of instances of that, that he used to make comments about women, quote, not being tough enough. He used to refer to the female employees like, do I own you? Are you one of mine? And there was an allegation that he literally made them feel like they belonged to him or tried to make that implication. He made to male individuals as well. Blake Griffin is an all, well, former all NBA player who's still in the NBA, just not quite what he once was. Um, His younger brother, who may have even been a minor, came into the locker room and I guess he was not a terribly hairy person and Sarver started asking him inappropriate questions about whether he shaved his entire body. Just a lot of, I don't know what the right adjective is for it necessarily. Just a lot of really problematic stuff really across the board on a racial and sexual basis. Yeah. And I think it added up over time. I think each of these comments, like even that comment to that NBA player at the time, the player didn't realize contextually how out of line it was. But I think as people have started learning more and more about what was happening. The volume, I think is very concerning. And I mean, the, the comments in themselves are concerning too. I don't want to 
put that out of place, but the, the level of what was going on over a 17 year period is pretty out of line. And I think part of the part of what this article even quotes too is HR didn't know how to handle it. They were themselves afraid. They were telling employees, look, let's go talk in the parking lot. You may want to file a lawsuit or threaten a lawsuit. At the very least, you'll get a severance package. But I think people were afraid of retaliation from doing anything from an internal standpoint. Well, I think that's a good segue into the legal part of this because we are the Employment Law Podcast. So let's dive into what this all means. And we would encourage people to check out the article. It's on ESPN.com. It's, I think, free. Um, I think it's a good example it, it, it was an interesting read. And there's also a podcast I listen to that I'll recommend to others. Um, not that you should listen to any show, but ours, but for the sports fans out there, it's called the low post L O W E post. It's a pun. Zach Lowe is the ESPN uh, NBA writer who does it. And he, from a non-employment litigators perspective, it was an interesting lay. It was interesting to hear lay folks talk about this issue because it's what we do for a living and to hear them kind of process it. Because what jumped out to me as soon as I listened to it was, oh, this is a pretty textbook case of a hostile work environment. You've got a scenario where you've got years and years of notice of con of bad conduct by somebody high up in an organization. I mean, this is the, there is nobody higher. He's the owner. We'll say just for purposes of the rest of the show that we'll call him the owner, recognizing there are minority owners here who own smaller portions of the team, that the minority owners, and everybody knows this about him, that as to what Amit was saying about HR, that HR was, I mean, the reason they were meeting with people in the parking lot is because they were telling these people, you don't want anybody to see you come talk to us, right? Because if anybody sees you talking to us, they'll know you're reporting or complaining about something. And that would be bad for you. Yeah. And the minority owners, it seems like based on this article, knew a lot of this was happening. A lot of senior executives kind of knew this was happening. And so it, it is textbook from an allegation standpoint, hostile work environment. And I think a lot of people who had a lot of influence and power themselves didn't do enough to kind of prevent this from getting to the level it got to in 2021. There's in reality, a stronger HR, stronger executives, a stronger minority owners could have really prevented a lot of this from happening 15 years ago and not letting it get to this point where you have huge media attention and now an outside law firm and the NBA investigating. What so, does you make it unique is the sports angle of it, because I think because it's a sports team, it's going to garner more press and there's more there can there can be more oversight. There is not just the and we'll talk about the different agencies that could be at play, but there is a legal side, but then there's a business side and the NBA can also get involved as an entity who essentially has to sign off to some degree on all 30 teams that are in the NBA. Well, let's back up for a minute and I'm putting you on the spot, but if Sarver is the, is the majority owner, this is the guy who's calling the shots. He's the one hiring and firing coaches every single year, like a crazy person. Um, what, what does HR if he's the guy that's signing the checks metaphorically, he's the guy hiring and firing people. What are the minority owners or HR going to do with that person to, to mitigate this situation? And that even comes up in the article in the sense of there are quotes. And I think they're mostly off the record from HR saying, look, he's writing our paycheck. So what are we going to do? If we try to do something, he can just get rid of us and fire us. I think that creates a very tough situation. And I think that's true in a lot of employment settings when the, the wrongdoing is coming from the very top, what should and what, what can other people within the organization do? Now here, I think the, it, it's the, there's no confirmation of this. It sounds like at the very beginning of his ownership, the minority owners had thought about trying to push him out, but his agreement to own the team made it very difficult to do so. 
it would have to be a pretty high bar. Um, obviously, and this is a good segue too, there could have been reports or cl- claims made or charges made to the EEOC or the, the Arizona, Arizona equivalent of that. Yeah, you know, of the Human Rights Association, whatever they have down there. That definitely could have happened. There could have been complaints made to the NBA to kind of start an investigation. This happened with another team, the Los Angeles Clippers, where there was a recording of the owner or the former owner saying some pretty egregious statements. And that did lead to an investigation and that owner did get pushed out. And Max, to your point too, I think one thing that becomes, I don't know what the right word is, but it seems unfair is that even if Sarver gets pushed out, the end result really is he sells his ownership stake in the team and he makes probably over a billion dollars because of just the way the market works for purchasing an NBA team. Yeah, it's quite a quite a punishment, right? Your punishment is you get to make... <laughs> it's, it's... You get to make over a billion dollars in profit as punishment for your, you know, for your misdeeds, like 17 years of misconduct. That's their punishment. You no longer get to own this team. And maybe there's some legal liability as well, but, and you know, also way back to that in a second, but really the punishment is, yeah, this is not your team. So you have to sell your stake to someone else. And there just aren't that many teams to purchase and someone's going to write a big check. Yeah. I mean, I think. I guess the silver lining in that hypothetical, and we are way not close to that outcome yet or guaranteed to no, get that it may outcome. Not happen. Right. Right. I mean, think about how much, I mean, really, I think the only way you get to that point, quite frankly, is what happened. So for folks who don't remember, about six, seven years ago, maybe a little bit less, Donald Sterling, former owner of the LA Clippers, was on tape talking to his mistress, who was a person of color herself, I think, making really horrifically sexist and racist remarks to the point where the players threatened to boycott and not show up for games. And that, and I think only that was the thing that finally pushed the NBA to push Sterling out. And I, yeah. I, I think, once again, unfortunately, it would require something drastic by the players to actually force Sarver out. And at least at this moment, they're not, I don't think the players are turned on him at this point. They seem to be supporting him. Their own players have not, and I, and I don't know if it's because the team from a performance standpoint this year and last year have done very well, but we don't have, this article does not quote any current players that I can remember, especially not any of the prominent ones of making an on the record statement about Sarver. In fact, most of them have just either been denials or there's just nothing, but we touched upon this for a second. So Max, what are some of the actual employment law, like liability that at stake for Sarver or for the Suns. Right. So let's, let's dive into that. So, and I think the way I want to think about this is not necessarily here, the laws they're necessarily going to get whacked with, but just what are some of the aspects of the legalities here? So one of the things that jumps out to me is who's the harasser here, right? So let's assume for argument's sake, most of what we're talking about here applies to Sarver. He's the owner of the organization, but we know in hostile work environment cases, liability to the organization finding somebody guilty, so to speak, of harassment, to simplify it, depends on who does it, because what standard we apply depends on who's our harasser. So if you have a coworker who's doing it, or somebody maybe is low level supervisor, team lead, something, but not enough power to hire or fire you, you're under the negligence standard, right? Newer should have known the employee reports and the organization fails to take proper remedial measures in some capacity. But we're not dealing with that right here. We're dealing with ownership. So at least my read on it is this is a strict liability case. There's actually, you know, in a lot of ways, to the extent you can meet the rest of the elements of the hostile work environment analysis, that the harassment is based on race or sex, whatever protected characteristic, it's unwelcome, it's 
both subjectively and objectively offensive. You know, when you get to the and there's a basis for liability prong of it, I don't I don't know that there's a lot of good defenses available to the Suns here, because when it's the owner of the organization, you're probably under a strict liability standard. And everybody knew this was happening under any analysis. I think I mean, obviously, we know these cases are never simple. There's always a defense that comes out there. But but on paper, they look dead to rights. I think that's true. I think there's been some denials. There's been some people who said they didn't know this was happening. But I definitely think you're going to get, especially from the allegations regarding some of the hostile treatment towards women, I think you're going to get a lot of women who come forward and say this was happening. And especially, I think, in the context of an, an investigation or subpoenas, I think some of the racial comments there seems to be a little bit more of a denial. But even there, I, I don't think it's going to be that much. So based on what we've seen so far, I think that's definitely true. So then what, what does that mean? Let's say there is liability. What are the damages here? What happens after that? Well, that's what's always tricky in these cases, isn't it? Because yeah. in, a, in a discrimination case, if it's straight disparate treatment or equal pay, the damages are pretty cut and dry. You can tell, I mean, your starting point is, well, what would I have earned if I got my promotion or I wasn't fired or if I was paid equally? But we're not really talking about that here. Unless somebody's been fired or quit, we're really talking about emotional distress damages and you know, punitive or compensatory damages, right? So it's that's a lot more intangible. And that's these cases are really challenging. This is one of the reasons, because how do you value this stuff? Yep. And we've had a we've had a guest on before, Susan Gossam, who talked about Gotham, sir. Gotham. Gotham. Keep doing that. I'm sorry, Susan. We talked about kind of the role of HR in these situations. And I think this is a very difficult one because people want to come to HR and HR's role is supposed to prevent this from happening, prevent it to the stage of a huge hostile work environment where you have 70 former empl- current and former employees making statements. Um, but HR just couldn't do anything. And so another guest we've had on recently is in the context of workplace investigations, racial ablum. And so walk us through that, Max, what's going on from the investigation side now? What are the next steps there? So that's what's tricky. And I think this sort of goes back to the Gruden episode we did a while ago. So if a private law firm has been retained, it's always good to be the private law firm retained for these things. I always, I'd love to look at that balance sheet one day. I suspect somebody makes a lot of money on these, but yeah, private law firms gotten retained. The NBA says they're looking into it. What's interesting here. And one of the things I find fascinating is, you know, non-disclosure agreements are one of the things that come up a lot. I know with our former president, that was always an issue. And, you know, you have mandatory arbitration agreements, what have you, different efforts by companies to keep things quiet. The Phoenix Suns apparently have NDAs for former employees. That was something I read in a separate article this morning. So the NBA says they're looking into it. The Suns deny it, but say they welcome the investigation. It's going to exonerate them. Interestingly, and they also said they're going to fully cooperate. Interestingly, they did not say whether or not that cooperation will allow will involve allowing former employees to speak. Um, and I guess in theory, void or waive the non-disclosure requirements. So they're going to cooperate, but they haven't said how much they're going to cooperate yet. What's interesting about those is from a, normally from a legal standpoint, if there's a court order or right. a government investigation, an employee can, uh, the law re- allows the employee to waive the NDA requirement so they can have a free conversation for obvious reasons. But this isn't a government investigation right. yet. It's an investigation by the NBA who hired an outside law firm to talk to people. And so, yeah, the Suns would have to agree to waive those NDA obligations if those employees are going to be able to talk freely to the investigators. I think that's what's one of the things that to me, just as an outsider, always gives 
an element of like a kangaroo court feel to sports organization investigations into their member teams, like whether it's the NCAA investigating a college sports team for recruiting violations or something else like the NBA or the NFL doing investigations like we've talked about, you know, they can investigate, but they're not judges. They're not government organizations that have subpoena authority. They're really limited by contractual arrangements and business arrangements they have with their membership teams, but they can't force people to waive NDAs. That I agree with. But what's unique, I think, because it's sports is A, it's going to get a lot more attention than I think if this was most other companies, you probably could see like a CNN article or something to that effect. But I don't know if it would be getting podcast attention just because there's a lot of sports podcasts, media attention, there's an entire sports channel. So I do think that makes it unique. And then B, he is a co he's an owner or majority owner of one team, but that team is in a situation where there are other teams too, that they all work together. Cause the end goal is to, for all the owners to make more profits. Sports are generally kind of weird in this standpoint, in the sense of they compete with each other on the court, but in reality, they're essentially working together from a revenue standpoint as the product itself, basketball does better. They get better TV deals, et cetera, which means then the commissioner of the NBA and the owners of all the other teams can put, can put some pressure on Sarver. But again, it just depends on the, con- on the wording of the contract, et cetera, and what level of conduct or misconduct he'd have to engage in to push him out. And as we alluded to before, if he gets pushed out, all that means is he sells his share of the team to someone else. And that person's going to, or group is going to write a big check because it's just hard. There aren't that many NBA teams to purchase. I mean, I guess the, the silver lining such as it is here is that like with Donald Sterling, you know, when you have that much money, like I think owning the team is an end to itself, right? Like maybe you own yeah. the team for money, but you're owning it for a prestige and like that the community owes something to you or just, hey, I own this, it's mine and he'd have to give it up. Yeah, he's going to get paid for it, but at least he doesn't have it anymore. Again, very, very, you know, we should all be so lucky as to fall upwards like that when we screw up or do something bad. But although I, I would like to think most of us wouldn't do anything like this, but. Yeah, no, that I agree with. I mean, the other aspect of this though is because he his net worth is so high and the research of the team are so high. I think a lot of former employees were afraid to do anything because they're thinking to themselves, what is the upside? Like we just talked about, the damages might be somewhat speculative. And the Phoenix Suns are going to have much more resources than an individual. And so is it really worth it for me to file a charge of discrimination with one of the agencies and then try to threaten a lawsuit? and go that route, what am I going to get out of that? And then how is that going to impact my career too, if I've done something like that, and I want to stay within the sports industry? Right. I mean, I think it, it, quite frankly, even though this is a sports story, it could just as easily be any other industry or case that any of us work on where it's a small community. I mean, it doesn't, you know, I've heard the same stories from teachers, school employees, people in broadcasting industries, any business, any business community, you're going to hear the same thing. It's a small community. I don't want to be labeled as litigious. I, they have so much power. I don't, you know, I I don't want to jeopardize my career. I've had a lot of client conversations that go into a couple of different buckets. One bucket is definitely like, I don't want this to get out there. I'm open to try to resolve this confidentially, but, or I may not even want to threaten anything because it's just not worth it to me. I'm going to find something else pretty soon or a new job. And I don't want other employers to then be afraid to hire me. So that definitely happens. I definitely have talked to clients who just say, look, 
this is a much bigger entity and organization. I'm not going to be able to handle the resources. Even if the fees aren't going to be that big for me, it's still a lot. They're going to do a full court press against me. And mentally, I just don't want to have to go through that. And then the final bucket too is people just thinking to themselves, what is the upside? What am I going to get? If Even if I win, what does that really mean? And so I think this is definitely industry agnostic in terms of the factors that employees often have to face when this type of toxicity and hostile work environment type culture is pervasive within either their jobs or their industries. Yeah. And I think too, like, you know, the only way the organization ever really changes, and it's still not a guarantee, pretty much requires a grand, a groundswell of movement like this, like single plaintiff cases almost in my experience, and I don't want to say it never happens, but to me, a, a single plane of harassment, whether racial or sexual case, is not going to change an organization that has a really toxic culture top to bottom. Like it, it almost, to me, requires this, like 70 people coming forward and being like, my God, this place is out of control. And outside bodies that they are subject to being like, we're looking into it and people being forced out or like otherwise consequenced. Because I think absent that, like, if you're a big, rich organization, you're just going to do what you're going to do. Well, and people were so afraid about speaking up, even in anonymous surveys, they would just lie. But at least that's what the off the record comments are, that they were afraid to even make statements in anonymous surveys because they thought it could get traced back to them and they would suffer retaliation. I, I, I just, I think I'm going to go back to what I said at the beginning. I, I do encourage people to check this out because it, it, in a lot of ways, it gives a really good summation of a lot of the employment law concepts that we've, not just that we've talked about, but that we all see why people don't come forward, how these things are allowed to happen at the workplace. Does this stuff even really happen anymore? Whether the racial, like, hey, it's 2021, who would ever think these things are okay kind of thing, or in a me too type, come on, nobody would really come forward and do this sort of thing in this day and age. It's like, nope, it still happens quite frequently. Um, and there are a lot of, you know, the, the reasons why people don't come forward are very well articulated in this, the challenges that HR, even a good HR department that really wants to do right faces, especially when people high up are the perpetrators, all of the different aspects of the story really touch on a lot of different themes for why hostile work environments go on and how they function. hundred percent. And it also circuits really well with a lot of the guests we've had on and a lot of the conversations we've had, for example, David Lee is very adamant about non-disparagement type language and limiting NDA type stuff. Well, this is partially why I think he really puts his foot on the pedal on those types of clauses. We've had guests talk about the role of HR and the role of investigations. And I think this kind of ties to all of that. And we've had you know conversations earlier too about just what is a wrongful termination? What is a hostile work environment? So I, I definitely recommend reading the article and kind of thinking it through that lens, not necessarily the sports lens, but just the employment law lens and the conversations we've kind of been having all year on this podcast too. Well, I know this has been kind of a heavy topic. So to switch gears a little bit, you know, we like to do a shout out of the week. And part of it is we want to do something positive, something nice, because sometimes the world is not positive. And so Max was very very adamant about doing one this week. So Max, what is your shout out of the week? My shout out of the week is finally to my chosen college sports team, the university of Michigan, because they got the, they beat the evil empire streak of nearly 10 straight losses to the Ohio state university and beat them roundly soundly and 
convincingly and broke their spirit and their will on Thanksgiving weekend and defeated them 42 to 27. And then last evening, they took the University of Iowa to the woodshed, beat them 42 to three and won their first Big Ten title since I was in high school. I was 17 the last time this happened. I'm now 34 and they are now in the college football playoff, hopefully going to get a shot at Ahmet's favorite team, University of Alabama. I really hope so. I mean, I actually don't because I think it's going to go really badly if Michigan has to play Bama again, but that's why I hope so. It'd be really fun. Uh, <laughs> so my team, Alabama, they, they are winners. They won the SEC championship game last night. It was, I really enjoyed it. It was not a close game. So that was awesome. And I am really rooting for Michigan. It'd be a fun final match to see Alabama play Michigan in the national championship game. No, it's just looking for an opportunity to drag me when Bama inevitably drags Michigan like they have everybody else for the last 15 years. So I, the best game I've ever went to was Bama versus Michigan State. That was a great um, game. Well, that was a great game. Bama won very big. And so I like won 49 re- nothing, 49 to three. I think I think it was nothing, but maybe they got a maybe Michigan State got a field goal at the end. But I really want a version of that game just instead of Michigan State to be Michigan. That'd be super fun. And I thought we were such good friends. <laughs> All right. Well, that's all we have. Thanks for, again, listening. Hopefully this was, it was a different episode, but it definitely touches upon a lot of stuff we've talked about this year and employment law. And it's definitely something that both of us find interesting and hopefully you all do too. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share and stay safe. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.